This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right. Well, hedge funds, we've been talking a lot this year, Taylor, about how it's been another kind of crummy year, again, to use a technical term, for the hedge fund world, even as, as we were discussing a little bit earlier in the show, people have been flocking to alternatives. Let's dig into that. Allison Williams joins us, Senior Analyst for Global Investment Banks and Asset Management for Bloomberg Intelligence. She's joining us on the phone from New Jersey. Allison, great to catch up with you here toward the end of the year. Hasn't been a good one for hedge funds. What's going on? It has not. And to your point, money is going into alternatives. It is just not going into the hedge fund segment of alternatives. Private capital is really where across the entire asset management industry, including uh, traditional types of investments, we're seeing sort of the most money go into and the most uh, resilient fees. And part of that is due to returns. The um, you know Keep in mind that there is uh, some premium for uh, illiquidity. Uh, they're illiquid investments. Um, however, the returns have been much better, and that even though those returns are expected to um, decline over the next several years, they're still expected to outpace other classes of investments. Hedge funds, on the other hand, I think what we're seeing is just sort of you know part of the broader value for money movement. We have managers such as D.E. Shaw that show pricing power, um, because they have the performance to back it. But on the other side of that, we're seeing uh, fees um, basically exiting the decade at a low. And I wonder how much this is due to the broad melt-up. If I put my money in an index fund and I'm getting 30% returns because the whole market is going up, why would I pay a 2 and 20 Is this perhaps maybe a one-off year where the broader gains in the market make the fees not worth it? Or is there something more structural within the industry going on? So I think there, there is definitely a structural challenge, although, um, you know, to your point, uh, in periods where uh, the market has higher returns and there's lower volatility, there may be less uh, concern uh, for, a project, for a product uh, that offers you a hedge, right, and, and a hedged product, if it's doing its job correctly, should not be matching uh, the returns of the S&P in a very strong year, um, such as this one. But I would, you know, I would keep in mind that a lot of the, not a lot of the strength, but, you know, if we looked at it sort of on a rolling two-year average or three-year average, uh, we did end 2014 on a, on a pretty sour note. Um, and the, ne- the, the data that you're talking about from the fourth quarter strength really isn't in some of the numbers uh, the most recent numbers from hedge fund data, flows and launches and liquidations and such, we really only have um, through the third quarter. Um, however, one thing, um, I guess, which is cyclical, it's just been a very long cycle, um, you know, the, the correlation of returns, when you have higher correlations of returns, it's very difficult for active managers to outperform. Right. I think one of the disappointing, I guess, um, 
thoughts, if you will, or disappointing inputs to the, the, the sort of several year ahead forecast is that we've gone back to a period where we have global monetary convergence in pushing rates lower. This is a factor that a lot of hedge fund managers had sort of attributed uh, to the fact that, you, you know, we had these high correlations. It was very hard to get good active outperformance. And if we're going to continue to be in this environment, I think it makes it tougher. So it's, it's to your point, maybe less interest on the client side, but also perhaps less interest on the manager side in terms of being able to find opportunities. Right, right. Well, and maybe less opportunity to really make the kind of money that we got used to seeing in the hedge fund business. Was this a business, Allison, ultimately, and maybe it'll take a few years to really assess this fully, where basically there were just too many managers. There, there were too many people who got in. There weren't enough good returns to go around in the market, broadly speaking, is just sort of doing its job and kind of culling out some performers who just weren't cutting it. So I think to your point, you know, active management in general, I think that there has been, um, you know, if we looked back over the last 20 or 30 years, um, you know, there there was perhaps some mispricing in terms of, you know, the customer overpaying for beta, right? And so, you know, as the industry has, has morphed into a lot more focus on active management, um, you know, active alpha, um, and how active is your portfolio, et cetera, and what, you're exact, what exactly you're paying for, and a move towards paying a cheaper fee for beta and then, you know, perhaps more for alpha, you know, obviously there's been a shakeout in terms of sort of the overpaying um, where you didn't get that performance. A lot of times when we do see a shakeout in the hedge fund industry, it is, you know, following, we have a, a very strong period like the present, um, where the market's very strong, and then we, we get sort of a correction like we had, um, you know, not a technical correction, but we have a pullback, right. as we saw in the fourth quarter of 18. And following that, you know, it sort of reveals where things, you know, funds that were perhaps just a levered long and not an actual hedge fund. And so even though we're seeing sort of these very negative numbers through the third quarter um, with the very strong market, one could actually argue that, you know, if we did get sort of a pullback next year, Perhaps we could have a little bit more um, shakeout on the, on that front because if right. you if you look in all the surveys of clients over time, why when are people and why are people unhappy with a return with fees because they're not getting the returns they're not yeah. you know getting what they're paying it's for it's just that easy yeah absolutely great context as always really appreciate it. Allison Williams senior analyst for global investment banks and asset management from Bloomberg Intelligence joining us on the phone from New Jersey. And we're going right back into my tech world. Jason, joining us on the phone is John Freeman, Vice President of Equity Research at CFRA, talking about some of his hot tech stocks, really, for 2020. Jason, you and I were reading through these, and a few really uh, uh, bold bold calls uh, stood out for me. So, John, thank you for joining us. One sure, of the, my, my pleasure. One of the uh, calls I wanted to talk with you about was Facebook entering the enterprise cloud services market. The cloud is all the rage. It's all we talk about. Where do you see <laughs> Facebook making some inroads in the cloud business? Sure. So, so sort of the, the, the ticket to entry, right, in the, in the cloud business, and I'm not talking about the application business kind of like, you know, where Salesforce is, but, you know, AWS and Azure and, and now the emerging um, uh, Google Cloud business, that requires scale. 
And, you know, those three companies obviously have tremendous scale in, in their data centers and, and in terms of the cloud infrastructure that they operate, and so does Facebook. So there are very few companies outside of those four, at least in North America, that can really, you know, generate that kind of scale and, and, um, and therefore, you know, be able to profitably uh, provide infrastructure as a service or platform as a service, uh, you know, cloud services to, to enterprises, um, you know, cost-effectively and profitably. And, and Facebook is definitely there. Um, they have toyed with the idea, but um, uh, obviously, as of yet, they have not uh, done that. I think it's a great choice because it, it does take advantage of their a lot of their uh, competitive advantages. But since they'll be they'll be the fourth entrant, it won't appear like they are you know abusing their monopoly power so they won't get you know I, I don't think they'll get a whole lot of regulatory scrutiny um, for entering the cloud like they did for example almost immediately when they were talking about you know uh, cyber um, um, uh, uh, cyber currency and you know, Bitcoin and Libra Libra yeah uh, right yeah and, and and the payment space which is you know just gonna obvious it, it really did sort of annoy the regulators because it came out of nowhere and people in Congress obviously were you know, didn't understand what was going on, but they were upset and so forth. So, well, within the cloud business, do you see them growing organically or making an acquisition? Oh, I don't. Yeah, I don't think they have to make an acquisition. Although, a, a number of maybe small acquisitions to to pick up, you know, sort of um, key technology pieces here and there. Um, that that would make sense. For example, Google uh, to enhance their cloud services. As you know, as as massive as their data infrastructure and cloud infrastructure uh, uh, is. Um, they bought a company called Looker for um, I think it was about two point four billion, I believe, um, which uh, you know provides some really good um, uh, analytical overlay and and and, and uh, differentiated services on top of what you know Google was already able to uh, uh, offer. Um, I think it's you know um, what can Facebook specialize in? Um, I think there's a lot that they could specialize in uh, in terms of taking advantage of um, advertising. You know the, the things that they know internally. You know uh, advertising, marketing, campaign management, that kind of thing. Um, so that's kind of where I'm looking for them to, you know, uh, to, to do this. I right. just think it would, it just makes it just makes sense, and it's it's the only kind of business, well, not the only one, but you know, it's, it's one of the few businesses that Facebook can get into that's big enough to move the needle, you know, and, right. uh, on the revenue base because their 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 core business is already pretty uh, pretty tremendous, growing well and, and profitable and so forth. Well, and as you say, probably not uh, going to raise the ire of lawmakers. We do talk and think a lot about the tech lash, uh, as you know. Talk to me a little bit about Oracle. Uh, what's going to happen there? Because that's a name, obviously, people watch very closely on the enterprise side as well. Sure. So you know, so it's interesting to look at the. I mean, the history of Oracle since you know the late '90s was to leverage their position in in databases and infrastructure right. software to go up the stack. Because and all these you know Fortune 500, Fortune 2000 companies, you know, they may be large, but they you know they they certainly want to be able to. There's a lot of uh, bang for the buck to to you know uh, buy the whole stack, right? You know, the whole solution, one-stop shop kind of thing, and that's what Oracle had been doing and and sort of amassing, you know, via acquisition uh, for you know uh, for for so many years, and now I think it's the other way around in a cloud world. You don't get you, you, there's not a whole lot of advantage 
uh, if the court, you know, if, if, if companies are all sort of, you know, at least outsourcing the, the infrastructure part to right. the cloud, right, what, why do you need this one-stop shop anymore? And I think it, it harms, there's sort of negative synergy. It harms the database business because they can't sell the databases to, to application, you know, uh, uh, SaaS players and, 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 and right. who, who, you know, uh, fear that they're going to, you know, that they're, because they are, they're, they're going right. to compete with them, right? And the application is the other way around. So yep. this, I, I think it, I think it, it would unlock a tremendous amount of value, mm-hmm. and um, really sort of um, clean up what what is. They, they need to do whether they do that or not. I don't know, but they, right. they definitely. But they need to, need to do something. It sounds like is your point. All right, we're going to leave it there. John Freeman, Vice President of Equity Research over at CFRA Research. So you got some Teslas apparently going to ease on down the road. China made. Uh, That's a big deal. Craig Trudell joins us, U.S. Auto's team leader for Bloomberg. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. The first 15 Model 3 stands assembled at the new Shanghai plant. That's Tesla's first outside the U.S. Uh, As I said, a very big deal. Craig, going to put it in some context for us. Nice to have you with us. So, what does this mean, uh, ultimately? This is a key part of Elon Musk's ambition, I would imagine. It is, and and it's kind of uh, deja vu for me. I remember in July 2017 when uh, when Elon Musk was uh, celebrating the start of production of the Model Three in Fremont, California, and mm-hmm. you know there was a bit of a uh, you know credit where credits due. They're they're you know roughly on on time uh, with with uh, making uh, cars when they said they would. Uh, they have these sort of grand plans for a quick ramp up. Uh, they promised everybody that the Model 3 was going to be much easier to build than the Model S and Model X would be. And then, as we all know, his prediction of production hell, as he put it, uh, very much uh, you know, was a challenge for, for them to overcome and from, emerge from. Uh, in, this, uh, in this case, you have a, a company that's in much better shape um, on a much stabler footing. Uh, they've made a lot of Model 3s in Fremont, California, but what they really need is to be able to sort of unlock the China market with cheaper Model 3s. They've been kind of hamstrung by the fact that, you know, you're, you it, it costs more to uh, sell an imported car in China. If you can make it locally, you can avoid uh, tariffs, you can avoid uh, tax uh, treatment that's less favorable, you can be eligible for subsidies, and so uh, sort of the medium to long-term plan is, is for more of these uh, cars that they make in uh, in the Shanghai Gigafactory uh, to have more local content and gradually bring down the price and, and, and the cost for themselves to make them. Well, and Craig, regionally, I think that you really have the picture from both the bulls and the bears of Tesla that I speak to. It all comes down to China. And if the demand for EVs in China is there or not, does this help solidify the bull thesis for Tesla that the China demand is there and Tesla will capture more and more of that market share? I think it's going to really depend on how quickly they can bring the price down. I think everybody was a little surprised that when when they announced the uh, pricing for the initial uh, China-built Model 3s that uh, it was only, I think, about a 3% difference with where they've been. Uh, but again, you know, the, the sort of game plan for them is is uh, to bring costs down, uh, manufacturing costs down. The labor in China is going to be much cheaper than it would be in Fremont, California. Again, you, you get uh, sort of this this bonus of, of uh, more subsidies uh, and, and uh, better tax treatment. 
But the other big question is also that outlook for subsidies. While, while Tesla is going to still uh, be eligible for some, the government has sort of dialed back the amount of support they're giving to electric vehicles and want to sort of make a play for, for this to be a segment that sort of stands on its own more so than it's been up to this point. And we've seen the last five months the electric vehicle market in China has really uh, struggled. And, and so there there is still sort of an open question of, of whether or not there's as much demand in that market as Elon Musk seems to think. Right. Talk to us about this company being on more stable footing, as you said earlier, because you think back six months, nine months, certainly 18 months, uh, this was a company where the bears were growling pretty loud and the bulls were a little more sheepish, just to extend all the uh, animal metaphors painfully <laughs> here on a Monday afternoon. Uh, but, you know, this is a stock, as you say, that's been on a nice run. It's down about 3.8% today, but that belies a really nice upward trend, especially since October with that big earnings surprise. Talk to us about Tesla right now overall. Yeah, I would, I would say the bulls and bears are still really loud. I don't know that they yeah. will ever quiet down. <laughs> this is one of the and the, and very firm in each uh, <laughs> yes. in each camp, right? Uh, There's nobody who's like, yeah, they're all right. Never in doubt that that's definitely the case. Uh, I I think this is a company that uh, you have to give them credit for, um, you know, for for proving everybody wrong about just how much demand there is out there for for their cars and the brand that they've built and and the ability that they've had to to really uh, sort of outshine the, the competition. And, you know, one of the bare arguments that has not, uh, you know, sort of uh, come to fruition is that, uh, oh, you know, the, when these established automakers really get serious about electric vehicles and bring them to market, uh, you know, they're, they're going to, uh, you know, really deliver a, a, a serious blow to Tesla demand. And that has just not been the case to this point. Uh, so I, I think you have to give them credit for, for bringing compelling uh, product to market. I do think that there are some serious questions uh, that the bears uh, raise that, that are compelling that, you know, this is also a, a company that's put off a lot of, of CapEx this year and that that's helped them deliver uh, the, the surprise uh, profit in the third quarter that you mentioned uh, has, has really been the, the catalyst for this big run-up in the stock. And that's going to be a big question along with their ability to sort of cope with the seasonality of, of the auto market. We can remember, you know, being in this position uh, this time last year that uh, Tesla in the third and fourth quarter of 2018 had uh, some surprising uh, earnings. And, and yet, uh, when we got into the first quarter, when everybody has a harder time selling cars, it's just right. a slower time of year for everybody. Uh, they really, really struggled to keep deliveries up. And uh, they, they reported big lo- uh, a big loss for the first quarter and second quarter of, of, of uh, 2018, uh, excuse me, of, of 2019. So really a question about whether or not, um, you know, they're, they're able to sort of uh, smooth out some of that seasonality a little bit and rely on, on uh, some of the new markets that they've uh, started to penetrate. So, Craig, yeah, you're talking to us a little bit about profitability in the bottom line. I think the big profitability last quarter is what caught everyone off guard. Can Tesla, though, continue to cut their way to a profit? That That's the one sort of argument that the bears make that makes a lot of sense to me. I think, you know, you, you still have uh, a lot of reasons to be, um, you know, hopeful that uh, there's maybe some offsets there. You think about uh, the, the ability for them to sort of cash in on credit sales uh, to other automakers that have trouble meeting emission standards, also being able to sort of cash in on uh, autopilot uh, gradually 
um, you know, being sort of more feature complete and, and then being able to uh, book some revenue off of that. But still, you, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to have to, you know, make and sell cars. And so, you know, their ability to execute on that front and, and uh, you know, keep people, uh, you know, sort of believing in this in this story. I think the other big question in 2020 is, you know, whether they can bring the Model Y to market as well. You know, that's a, a segment in, in sort of the more crossover uh, SUV space that, uh, you know, the, established automakers have been able to, uh, you know, sort of <laughs> count on, uh, right. on endless uh, demand in that segment and, and really be able to price for it. And, and that may help uh, Musk out a lot in sort of uh, proving the doubters wrong. Well, it feels like 2020 will be yet another year where Tesla will be among the big stories. We know you and your team will be watching it. Really grateful to you for spending some time with us here on a Monday afternoon. Craig Trudell, U.S. Auto's team leader for Bloomberg. He is back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Taking care of business now for decades, nine decades, in fact. Bloomberg Business Week has been around, and he hasn't been there for all of that time, but he has been there for quite a bit of it, more than most. Peter Coy, economics editor, so much more over at Bloomberg Business Week. He's back in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Peter, I was going to say Happy New Year. Not quite, but Happy Holidays. 30 years. 30 years, man. Yes. You've seen a lot. But take us back even before you got there, because in the world of economics, and Carol and I, Carol Master and I got a chance to catch up with you about this for our yeah. weekend show. Right. You know, we did talk about the, I think you could say, outsized influence that this magazine has had on the world of economics and the economic theory and, and really just yes. the way we think about economics since the beginning. Tell us about that. Yeah, I would like to focus on the very, very early years Business Week was founded inauspiciously just seven weeks before the great stock market crash of October 1929. So uh, not the best way for a magazine to enter the world. And in those first years, Business Week was uniquely perceptive in seeing that we were in more than a garden variety downturn, that something was seriously wrong, and that the the medicine of sort of uh, expunging debt, liquidating, which was a message you were hearing from people like Andrew Mellon, the Treasury Secretary at the time, would, would actually not be medicine at all, but would be more like poison for the economy. And that what was needed was loving care, was, need, was uh, government spending and, and tax cuts and uh, lower interest rates. And so really this amounted to uh, the prescription of John Maynard Keynes, a famous British economist, and it was proved to be the correct prescription. It took a long while for people to come around to it. At, at that same time, you had organizations like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce uh, calling for fiscal, fiscal stringency and balanced budgets. So we had a, one econom, uh, economics professor looked at our coverage of those times and said that Business Week's editorials offered perhaps the most sophisticated Keynesian-style economic analysis of any mass publication and this is what you were talking about, Jason. Its influence may have been disproportionate to its circulation as it targeted an elite <laughs> audience of businessmen. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. You know, Peter, I wanted to ask you as you take a look back at your 30 years or yeah. even longer, what yeah. have you noticed has been the biggest shift in the coverage or topics within the magazine? Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, I think we one thing we've gotten away from is the celebrity profile of the CEO. That yeah. used to be sort of a regular thing. You'd slap some guy's 
picture on the cover and talk about. And it his, was usually a guy, right? Usually white man, you know, yeah. uh, who who was lionized as having you know raised some company up from the dead or brought it to new heights or or he's the person in the hot seat who's got a difficult job. But it was always it was always built around this cult of personality, and I think we've really gotten away from that. Uh, it's partly probably a reflection of the culture as a whole. That we're, we we people uh, we journalists, but we American public and really the global readership don't tend to go for that so much anymore. It just doesn't ring true to us. And so, from an economics perspective, too, it feels like the coverage, and you've been obviously at the helm of this, at the at the core of this. It's interesting to think about even lately the topics that you guys have been taking up, and and I recall. A story that we talked a lot about earlier in the in the year about modern monetary theory. I yeah. mean, it's hard to imagine yeah. in the early days of Bloomberg Business Week uh, that yeah. this is what we'd be talking about, right? It is. Although I have to give a lot of credit to those early writers. There's a famous uh, Polish economist named Michel Kolesky who was um, basically a communist, and there's an article from the 1940s where it said. Here's a guy you ought to get to know more about. <laughs> and so they, they, even back then, there was an eclecticism. Yeah. It, it, you know, I would hardly say that the Business Week would, would ever endorse a, a communism. It was clearly a, f- a great believer in free markets. But right. there was the sense that, hey, we, there's a lot of people we can learn from and we want to hear about. You know, Peter, one of my favorite pieces of yours in recent memories, and by recent I mean in the last few months or so, was uh, the cover story, Is Inflation Dead? Ah, yes. Remind us again sort of how you come up with these ideas, where you do your research to come up with catchy titles like Is Inflation Dead? Um, I believe that uh, Joel Weber, actually, the editor, (laughs) came to me with that one, said, you know, asked me to look at it. And I think that the original thought was, inflation is dead. And I said, I cannot go with inflation is dead. <laughs> Let's go with a question mark. Yeah, How about it? That's, a, that's always the cop-out. But yeah. uh, in this case, I felt much more comfortable. With now, it turns out that inflation is just as quiescent now as it was when we wrote that. So it, it's not, we're not wrong yet. Um, and, we, of course, we had the great art with that one, which was a blow-up dinosaur that right. deflates. And there's actually a gif on, you can find on the uh, Internet of the dinosaur deflating is a lot right. of fun. Yeah. Well, uh, you've done some great work uh, in your first 30 years. We're looking forward to the next 30 uh, here at Bloomberg Business Week. Peter Coy, Economics Editor for Bloomberg Business Week, helping us celebrate Bloomberg Business Week's 90th birthday. A check out Peter's contribution. It's at the current issue of the magazine. He and a team uh, with a collective decades and decades of experience uh, put together a really fascinating look back through the years. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Randy Watts back with us, Executive Vice President, Chief Investment Strategist for William O'Neill 
and company joining us from our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. It's such a terrible move as a host to like leave your guests behind. It's like you know, it, it couldn't be ruder. So really appreciate you joining us, uh, Randy, as Taylor and I are out here uh, in San Francisco. But what a year it has been for the equity markets. Tell us what you make of it as we get to the last couple trading days here. Uh, it's really, it really has been uh, uh, quite a year for the markets. Obviously, the S and P is now up about 28% for the year. Uh, normally, however, I should note that when you have this strong a year as we've just had, the next year actually is usually a little bit below average in returns. Hmm. It's normally up around 7% when the average for the market overall is about eight. Also, when you have this strong a year, oftentimes the January of the next year is actually down. So in years where the S&P has been up over 20%, January, the following January actually returns about uh, minus 0.3%, and it's down about 50% of the time. Randy, what wild cards, though, if any, are there that we should be looking out for, given it's an election year? I think well, a couple of things. First off is that the third year of the presidential cycle is usually the best year of the presidential cycle, and we definitely which would be got this that. year, right, twenty nineteen. Exactly, and we definitely yeah. got that uh, this year. Normally, the, the 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 fourth year is only up about six percent. I'd say the biggest wild card, though, Taylor, to to kind of go right to your question, is that the markets are clearly anticipating both stocks and bonds that the global economy is going to be better next year, and that actually is not in sync with what earnings estimates are doing. So earnings estimates for the fourth quarter of 2019 have fallen. They've also fallen for the first and second quarter of 2020. And the market is looking for a big rebound in growth in the second half. And so our question really is, are investors still too optimistic on what the earnings growth rate is going to be next year? Well, I also think about sort of various sectors, and you know, we were talking earlier in the show because we are in San Francisco about all things tech. And one of our uh, colleagues back there in New York was actually mentioning uh, Mike Regan, the chip stocks and everything that's going on more broadly in tech. And I do wonder what you make of tech's chances going into twenty twenty. You know, you know, we like tech. It's a secular grower. We like specific niches in tech as opposed to saying we like all of tech. Mm -hmm. Obviously, semis have been very strong, and they are anticipating an economic recovery next year. Or I shouldn't say a recovery, but an improvement. Uh, within semis, you know, we like NVIDIA. That's a leader in the AI and computing platform space. It's also very big in gaming and data center. They've got an acquisition of Mellanox that's going to close early next year, and, and that's a name we like. But I think we're really trying to look for specific themes whether it's cloud computing or whether it's digital payments, as opposed to just saying we like all the tech. What about antitrust and all of the headwinds and noise and chit-chatter in, in Washington, D.C.? I think that's really on a stock-by-stock -stock basis. Obviously, I think some of the biggest risks are in the Internet space and in the social media space. You know, Facebook seems to have uh, made some, some uh, enemies on both sides of the aisle in, in Congress. So I think that's a factor. I, I would say one area we really do like, though, is we like health care. And healthcare's lagged for the last four years versus the market. It's not expensive. It's basically trading at a market multiple. And it's the only sector actually predicted to have double-digit earnings growth in both 2019 and 2020. And this is a sector where we think investors got way too pessimistic. And I think they're now realizing that maybe healthcare reform isn't going to be as draconian as they initially thought.
Randy, talk to us about the luxury space, because we were just talking a few minutes ago about how sort of the finer things, as it were, actually investing in wine, art, an area I know you know uh, very well uh, through a lot of your uh, your avocational <laughs> work at the Whitney uh, and elsewhere. You understand that market so well. The sort of investing in wine and art and cars hasn't been as lucrative, and yet luxury stocks have done pretty well. Do you expect that to continue? Well, again, I think it's a name-by-name name basis. Yeah. I mean, some of the luxury stocks have had problems this year if they were too exposed to the China market, right. because obviously China's been weak, and also that that rich Chinese traveler has been traveling less in 2019. But I think what's interesting in luxury is that there's some very strong brands that we all know globally, and that space continues to consolidate. So one name we do like, we still like LVMH. Huh. They're obviously buying Tiffany here in New York. We think they have, an, they, have a, they have a potential to really broaden Tiffany more outside of the U.S. And long term, we think they can raise their margins because if you look at Tiffany, their margins are you know, way below where Cartier's are. And so LVMH has done a great job of really driving brand equity and, and raising margins. So I think that's a name that investors can look at for 2020. And you mentioned China a little bit, and I wonder as we look globally and internationally, who, what stocks, what sectors are poised to overcome what appears to be another year of slowdown in Chinese growth? Uh, you know, again, the markets are actually look pretty good technically right now. So Europe, Hong Kong, Japan have all been improving, and emerging markets have been doing much better the last couple of months. So clearly, investors are anticipating better growth there. And they're also, I think, anticipating that China's going to stabilize uh, its growth rate in 2020. You saw the PBOC today change uh, lending requirements to try to get more liquidity into the system. So they're still really being aggressive in terms of their central bank in, in, in terms of boosting growth. Uh, uh, so, but, but I think it still remains to be seen. I think one of the key stories for those markets, especially the emerging markets, to see, is to see the dollar weaken. Mm-hmm. All right, Randy, uh, in just the last 45 seconds, seconds or so we have left, what's your single biggest worry going into 2020? That, that earnings estimates haven't stabilized, they're yeah. still coming down, and that people are looking for 10% growth for next year, and I think it's more likely to be 6 or 7. And so I think the PE on the market is unlikely to change a lot, but investors may have the E wrong. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, always thoughtful. We love catching up with you. Randy Watts, Executive Vice President, Chief Investment Strategist for William O'Neill & Company, joining us from our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Happy New Year to you. We know we'll be talking to you more in 2020. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.